Why? How many of us have ever had that question fall from our lips? So we look at the recent hurricanes, the earthquakes, and now the shooting in Las Vegas most recently. Many are asking, why is there so much suffering and devastation in the world? And why isn't God doing something about it? Those are haunting questions, aren't they? But they're not new. In fact, 2,600 years ago, there was a prophet by the name of Habakkuk who was asking some of these same questions. He cried out to God, why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Why are you silent? Today, I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to the book of Habakkuk. It's a small book in the Old Testament. You'll find it past the books of Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and then Habakkuk. And in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 tell us this. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and thou wilt not hear? I cry out to thee violence, yet thou dost not save. Why do, they, why do you make me look at iniquity and cause me to look at wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Habakkuk calls this message an oracle. The word literally means a burden. It shows the weightiness, the difficulty of this message that he's been given by God to bear and to share. As you've watched the news with all of the natural disasters and and now the most recent shooting, have you felt the burden of suffering? Have you been looking around at the world and it seems to be spinning out of control? Here Habakkuk cries out, How long, O Lord, will I call for help and thou will not hear? You You see the word showing his agony. There's this apparent delay in the response of God. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever said, God, why don't you answer prayer? God, where are you? What are you doing? And as we look at what Habakkuk is crying out for here, his concern is not only that his prayers seem to go unanswered, but he's concerned about the spread of the wickedness and the violence in the world around him. Uh, Habakkuk wasn't the only one addressing this problem in that day. There was another prophet by the name of Jeremiah. It's one of the larger books in the Old Testament, and Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. These two were contemporaries, and Jeremiah had been sent to the nation of Judah. These were the southern kingdoms. Remember, there were the ten northern tribes that had split off called the kingdom of Israel. They've already been carried away into captivity. And Judah had been following uh, in Israel's footsteps, turning their back on God. And God said, there is judgment coming to you, so he sent Jeremiah. And Jeremiah wept as he saw the condition of of Judah, as he saw the hardness of people's hearts, as they refused to turn to God. And he warned them, you will be carried away into captivity just like Israel has already happened. And rather than repent, Judah responded, the people responded by beating up Jeremiah, by throwing him in prison. The king in power at the time was a godless man, worse than the ones before. Second Kings 24, 3-4 tells us, Surely at the command of the Lord it came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that Jehoiakim had done, and also for the innocent blood which he had shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. You can see why he's crying out violence. 
He says, even the king who is responsible for protecting the people is shedding blood and spreading violence. And sadly, we see the same things in our day, don't we? The word violence that you see here is the Hebrew word Hamas. You ever heard Hamas? Hamas is a terrorist organization in the Middle East that is spreading uh, death and destruction in Israel and even among the Palestinian people. And these are, are people who proudly say, we are Hamas, we are violence. You know, it used to be before uh, September 11th that many in America thought terrorist attacks were only something that happened overseas in the Middle East. But now it's become a part of our daily lives, hasn't it? We, we hear about cars that purposely run over people on sidewalks or drive into parades and crowds at music festivals, like up in Austin at South by Southwest. We, we hear about shootings on a regular basis, no longer just on drug-infested street corners, but it happens in safe places like hospitals and shopping malls and schools, and now most recently at a concert in Las Vegas. This book we're looking at today was written over 2,600 years ago, but it's just as current as picking up the newspaper this morning, isn't it? As we read about the things that are happening. And as we see these things happening in our world, it can be easy for us to say, God doesn't care. Or God is asleep at the wheel. If you're tempted to say those things, I want to remind you that long before you and I ask the questions, where is God and what he is doing? Long before Habakkuk, 2,600 years ago, asked these questions, it was God himself who was asking the question of us. How long will it be before you turn to me? When God delivered the people of Israel from slavery and the oppression in Egypt, as he watched over them in the wilderness, as he met their needs, uh, the people didn't respond to God in gratitude. Instead, they grumbled and they complained. In Exodus 16, 28, it says, Then the Lord God said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instruction? When God brought the people of Israel to the promised land and said, I've given you the land, go in and take it. They responded in unbelief. They turned their back on God. So the Lord said in, in Numbers 14, 11, How long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? And in terms of why God has not eliminated evil in our world, 2 Peter 3, 9 tells us, The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. You see, the fact of the matter is, God isn't asleep at the wheel. God isn't absent. God isn't powerless. The reason he's not yet acted in terms of the things we see happening in the world is because of his great love, his great mercy, and his long-suffering patience with us, his people, today. God says there is a time coming when I will judge evil. I will wipe out the wrongs in the world. I will fix things. But it's only because of my mercy and grace that I've not yet acted. Because God says there is a time coming, a time of great suffering and judgment. And the only reason he's not yet acted is because of that. Over a hundred years before Habakkuk cried out, Violence! Why don't you do something, God? God had said through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53, I see 
the wrong in the world. And this is what I'm doing to deal with it. I'm going to send my son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to send the Messiah to come, to walk among you on the earth, to suffer the limitations of humanity, to to suffer the ultimate humiliation as he went to the cross and he died a criminal's death for you and me. It's what we see in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 23 tell us. Men of Israel, listen to these words of Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Habakkuk says in verse 4, the law is ignored. The, the Hebrew word literally means to be slack. It, it, it means to, um, to grow cold or to grow numb. Have you ever been in a, in a place where it gets really cold? Not like here in San Antonio in the winter. I mean a place where it's really, really cold. And, and you didn't have anything covering your hands. And do you remember what happens? How your hands... They, they grow numb, and they, they're, they're almost useless. I mean, you, you try to grip something, and you can't do it. And, and this is the picture here. He says the people's hearts have, been, have grown cold to God in his law. They've turned from him. They're not doing the things that they should. And, and as a result, the whole system of righteousness and protection is breaking down. And it's the same thing that we see here in America. We as a nation have turned our backs on God. We as a country have continued to move farther and farther away from God, and we say, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why are these things happening among us? Shortly after the terrorist attacks on 9-11, Billy Graham's daughter, Anne Graham Lotz, was asked in an interview, how could God let something like this happen? And Lotz responded, I believe that God is deeply saddened by this, just as we are. But for years, we've been telling God to get out of our schools, to get out of our government, to get out of our lives. And being the gentleman that he is, I believe that God has calmly backed out. How can we expect God to give us his blessing and his protection if we, if we demand that he leave us alone? Now, as I share that, I'm not being trite. It breaks my heart to see what's happening in the world around us. It breaks my heart to see little kids killed in a school like happened at Sandy Hook. It breaks my heart to think of people who one moment were celebrating and enjoying life, dancing and singing, and the next second they were screaming and dying as somebody rained down bullets upon them in Las Vegas. And when those things happen... What we do as people is we say, if God were good, if God were as great as he says he is, if God were as powerful as he was, then he would have stopped it. When the natural disasters happen, when the storms come, we say, well, is God really powerful? Is he really over creation? And so we say it means that God is either not good or he's not as powerful as we thought he was. Because if he was good, he wouldn't have let evil happen. And if he was as powerful as he is, he would have stopped it. And if he didn't stop it, it means he's not good because he didn't stop evil. Is that how we think? But the problem is in our logic. 
The conclusions we come to are flawed because what we've forgotten is these things are happening because of us. It's a cause and effect relationship. We tell God, we don't want you around us. We say, why is the world broken? Why are all these catastrophes like earthquakes and tsunamis and hurricanes after hurricanes coming? And what we forget is God created the world in perfection. Mankind broke it. God made it perfect. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, it was in perfection. Fellowship was was perfect. Man and God walked face to face together. And mankind chose to sin. We turned our back on God. We walked away from Him. We broke the world. The world is is cursed. Romans 8.22 tells us, The whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. We want God to fix the world. We want God to stop the violence. Imagine for a moment that this pulpit is a campfire, a roaring bonfire. And you're out in the middle of the wilderness. It's a cold, frigid night. And the fire is here and you're you're around it. And you're, oh, I love the warmth and the light. And, And what we do is we turn our back on it. We begin to walk away from it. And as you move farther and farther from the fire into the darkness, what happens is you lose the heat. You lose the light. And, and we go, well, where, where, where is God's blessing? Where is his protection? And what God says is, if you will come back to me, you can have these things, a cause and effect relationship. We say, God, the world is broken. And if you're all powerful, fix it. Stop the natural disasters. And we forget we broke the world. And we forget what God has said about the world. He says, there is a time coming when I will fix the world. I will stop all of these things. Uh, As I said in Romans, it says creation is groaning and waiting for that day of redemption. And God tells us that day is coming. But it is because of his mercy and grace it has not yet come. Because as you look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, tell us this. But by his word... God's word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? in holy conduct, in godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by the burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. God says, you want me to deal with the natural disasters, the catastrophes in the world? You want me to fix it? Well, the way that I fix it is by destroying the corrupt creation and and recreating it in perfection. And what that means is, when God acts, this world as we know it is gone. You want evil to go away? Friends, evil is not just what a shooter does in Las Vegas when he massacres 59 people and wounds hundreds of others. Evil is not just what happens with ISIS over in the Middle East. Evil is what happens when you and I choose to gossip about somebody and talk bad about them. It's what happens when we cheat, when we lie, when we steal. That is evil too. And we say, God, when are you going to deal with the depravity of man. When are you going to judge evil? And God says, if I am to truly judge evil, it means I have to judge you as well. 
And it is only because of the mercy and grace of God that his judgment has not come upon the earth. Now, I'm not trying to gloss this over. I'm not trying to excuse God and and the things that are happening. Uh, I'm not not blind to the suffering in the world around. As I watch those, those shootings in Las Vegas, as I watch videos and body cam footage from police officers and and cell phone videos of other people, it not only broke my heart, but it brought back a flood of bad memories. Many of you know I had been a police officer in Dallas. And there were lots of times that I was the first person on the scene. There were lots of times I came up on carnage when it was fresh. There were multiple casualty situations that I had to deal with on more than one occasion. Now, none of them were at the level of Las Vegas, but I have vivid memories of going into places where I am literally going from one body to the next, to the next, and the next, and checking for signs of life. This one is dead. This one is posturing and gurgling. They're not going to make it. This one, and you're, the whole time as you're moving from person to person trying to triage, they're still an active shooter. And you've got your gun out and you're looking down and, 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 and you're terrified and you're trying to deal with it and you're peeking around a corner and you're, oh, there's another body. And as you go to that body and you look down another corridor, there's another one. And on one occasion, I confronted the shooter. He was there. He had gone in. He had murdered a bunch of people. And as I came across him, he put the gun to his head and killed himself. It breaks my heart. I don't stand up here as a preacher with pious platitudes saying, oh, I'm, I'm removed from all of this suffering and destruction. I have seen it. And I want God to judge it as much as you do. I want these things to be dealt with. But what it means is that God will deal with us. I was recently in Africa. I've been in Rwanda. I've, I've gone into underground crypts where there are literally tens of thousands of skulls and bones of people piled up to stand among literally tens of thousands of people who were murdered in a genocide that happened in our lifetime less than 20 years ago. Almost a million people were killed in 100 days. It wasn't with high-powered rifles from a high-rise. It was where neighbors who had known people walked in with knives and machetes and hacked friends to death. The first murder in the Bible was a brother who killed another one with a rock. I'm not here to debate gun violence or other things. I'm here to say, friends, the problem is the wickedness of our heart. It's not weapons. The problem is that we are sinful and fallen people who have turned our backs on God. And we wonder, God, where are you and what are you doing? And he says, there's a cause and effect relationship here. You're walking away from me. You're, you're leaving me. And when the hard things happen, they can be used to drive you back to me. Will you turn back to me? Will you be a people who will see your need for Christ? Jesus is the only one who can pay the penalty for our sins. And Jesus is the only one who can change the wickedness of our hearts But as long as we want to be the ones in control and do things the world's way, things are only going to get worse and worse. For those who sit back and say, God isn't doing anything. Where is God? Why hasn't he stopped the violence? You need to read 2 Thessalonians 2.7. Because in 2 Thessalonians 2.7 it says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so. Until he is taken out of the way. 
The one who restrains is the Holy Spirit. God is resident in the world right now, present in the lives of every man, woman, boy, and girl who is a believer in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord and the Spirit of God dwells within you? God is right here in this room. And every person who is a believer, he is resident in you. And what the Bible tells us is there is a day coming where the church will be raptured. You know, we have those in the world that say, we hate Christ. We hate the church. I wish all Christians would just be gone. Well, there is a day coming where that is going to happen. And when the church is removed, when believers are taken home to be with the Lord in heaven, the restrainer, the Holy Spirit, goes too. And at that moment, the world will see what God has been doing to stop evil. Things like the shooting in Las Vegas, things like the horrible genocide in Rwanda, those type of events will be little blips on the radar. There will be mass murders in every city and every place around the world. There will be wholesale killings of people. Read the book of Revelation. Read Revelation 9, 18 through 21, where it tells us a third of the people on earth will be wiped out. That's over 2 billion people at current count that will suddenly be killed. 59 people dying, 900,000 or so in Rwanda dying. Those are horrible events. But friends, there will be billions upon billions of people that will die. And those that live will face untold suffering as God allows Satan free reign for a time. God is restraining evil whether you think he is or not. We live in a world where more and more people are pushing God aside and we're saying, we want the throne. We don't want God on it. And we forget the cause and effect relationship. Israel knew all about this. They experienced it. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, they said, you know, God, we don't want you to be king over us anymore. We want a human king, just like the rest of the world. Give us us a, a human leader. And God said, you have free will. You've chosen to reject me. I'll give you what you want. But then he says, with it will come consequences. 1 Samuel 8.18, it says, Then you will cry out to me in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Habakkuk is telling the people of the southern kingdom, you have turned your back on God. You've walked away. And because of that, there is a cause and effect relationship. There are consequences coming. The consequences were a foreign power named the Chaldeans were coming in to capture Israel. They had abandoned God. But even in the midst of the discipline, God did not abandon his people because Habakkuk one twelve through 13 tells us, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God? My Holy One, we will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge. And you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. You see, when we face those times of trouble, what we need to do is what we see Habakkuk doing here. The first thing he does is he focuses not on why or where are you, God. Instead, he says, who? Who are you, God? What do I know about you? In those times where we don't understand what is happening or why it's happening, we need to come back to who. Who God is. 
And what he did for us, where he loved us so much, he went to the cross and he died for us. Habakkuk, as he's focusing on who God is, he's reminding himself here of who God is and how much he loves us. And whatever it is you're facing in your life this morning, whether it's the tragedies in the world around or something personal you're dealing with, I want you to remember something. Those problems are temporal. They're passing. But God is eternal. And he's everlasting. And that's what Habakkuk does here. He says, you are from everlasting, O God. You are permanent. You will not pass away. You do not change. When things are good in our life, we say God is good. Friends, when things are bad in your life, God is still good. He does not change. And so Habakkuk says, you are eternal. You are everlasting. In contrast to our problems, which are passing. He builds on this by reminding himself of who God is. He uses God's holy covenant name, Yahweh. Whenever you see the word Lord in all capital letters in your English Bible, it is the name Yahweh. It is God's holy covenant name. And Habakkuk reminds himself, you are the God of covenants. You are the God who who keeps covenants. We've seen that as we've been going through Luke, and we've talked about the covenants of God in our series that we're stepping out of today. And he says, you are Yahweh. This is the name that God revealed in Exodus 3.14, where God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The name I am reminds us that God is present. He is present and he will preserve us. He's not the God I was or I will be. He is I am. He's with us right now right in the suffering you're facing, right in the broken world that we are, he is with us. He is Emmanuel, a name that literally means God with us. He left his throne in heaven to come to earth to be the baby of Bethlehem, as we've seen to become the Christ of Calvary. He says, I am. So in those times where you're worried about what is happening, when you're fearing for the future or regretting the past, remember God is a God of the present and he is here to preserve us. And the reason that this is so important in this context that Habakkuk was writing is because the Chaldeans were a fierce people. They were known to wipe out their enemies. They were a destructive people. And what he's saying is you will be defeated, but you will not be destroyed. And in those times where we face problems, we need to do as Habakkuk did. We need to remind ourselves of the promises, the covenants God has made. We need to remind ourselves of the promises for us in the New Testament, like Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 through 6. For he himself has said, I will never, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? What can man do to you? The worst that can happen is that you die physically, that your life is snuffed out when a shooter uh, shoots and kills you. Is that what you're worried about? Matthew 10, 28 tells us, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. For, thus, for those of us who are Christians, what God says is when we leave this earth, 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When our life is over on earth, our eternal life begins. That is the foundation 
that we need to remember. That's the foundation Habakkuk is speaking of. He talks about God being a personal God. He says, you are my God. He uses the name Elohim here, Yahweh before and now Elohim. Elohim is a, is a name that means God is sovereign. He is the all-powerful creator, sustainer, and consummator of history. So what we're being told here is God is both personal and preeminent. He said, my God. We get to say our father, daddy. When you're scared, he says, crawl up in my lap. Come as my little children. And I will surround and protect you. God is called my holy one. He's sacred or set apart. The word holy literally means to be sacred or set apart. It speaks of God's purity. Something Habakkuk will talk more about in verse 13. As we talk about purity here, um, that's the catalyst for hard things that happen in our lives sometimes, isn't it? If, if you look at gold, the way that it's purified is it's put in a refining fire. The dross is burned away. The, the, the heat is turned up, or as we talked about recently, metal is tempered as it's put into the fire. And it burns away the things. It can burn the bonds to our past or the things of the world. It can purify us, make us more useful or stronger to be used by God. Hard things in your life sometimes are a consequence of sin, but sometimes they're not a direct discipline for sin. Have you ever read the book of Job? In the book of Job, there was a righteous man that Satan said, um, let, me, let me at Job. And one of the great truths of the scripture in Job is we see Satan is not allowed to go beyond what God allows. He can set boundaries. Satan isn't running free in the world. He doesn't, he's not all powerful. God is. First John 4, 4 says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The Holy Spirit, God himself is more powerful than Satan. But in the book of Job, we see a man who Satan said, well, if you remove your hand of protection and blessing from Job, he's going to turn his back on you and walk away. And God said, no, he won't. And Satan said, well, then let me at him. And God put up boundaries. Well, you can take things away from him, his wealth. Then his children were killed. And Satan said, oh, yeah, well, you haven't let me touch him personally. You know, skin for skin, let me add him and you'll see him. Well, God said, okay, you can do anything you want to Job except take his life. And in the midst of extreme suffering, when, when things could get no worse as he's sitting in an ash heap with a broken piece of pottery scraping boils as his skin was oozing and his wife is saying, curse God and die, he didn't turn from God. And then his buddies show up. Remember his friends? They were helpful at first when they just sat and had a ministry of presence. But then they decided, well, it's time for us to bring the truth and they spoke to him and they said, well, you know, this is a result of your sin. And Job said, no, it's not. Oh, come on, Job, confess it. Bad theology sometimes says there is time. Now, please hear this correctly. There are times we suffer because of our sin. That's a direct consequence. But there are other times that there is not a direct connection saying, well, this person was so wicked, this happened to them versus that person. Have you heard any bad theology surrounding the shootings in Las Vegas? I've heard well-meaning ministers say, well, Las Vegas is the city of sin. And that's why the shootings happen there. Or maybe you've seen the, the statements that because they were country music-loving people who love guns, that's why these things happen to them. You ever heard any of that garbage? 
You know, we're going to be going through the book of Luke. As we, and when we get back to Luke chapter 13, this is what it tells us in Luke 13, 1 through 5. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Jesus said, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, they were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus says we are all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23. He says we're all deserving of judgment. We can say, well, that person's worse than me or that country is more godless than America. And what God says is when you turn your back on me, when you walk away from me, you need to repent. The word repent literally means to have a change of mind that leads to a change of action. It speaks of walking in one direction and saying, whoa, I'm going in the wrong way. And you turn around 180 degrees and you go back. So as we walk away from God, what he says is we realize we're going the wrong direction. And we need to stop, we need to turn around, and we need to come to him. We need to acknowledge we do not belong on the throne. God does. And he calls on us to repent. As we look at our world spinning out of control, God says you need to turn back to me. Have you ever watched these reporters in hurricanes? They love to get that money shot, right? They go out there and the wind's blowing and and they say, okay, where's the best place? Get a big tree and they kind of stand behind it and they want us to see how how valiant they are leaning into the wind and oh, you know, and, and maybe I have these little guilty pleasures, but I love it when they kind of fall down and roll, <laughs> roll down the street. I'm like, hey, cause and effect, you, you know. But anyway, they get out there and, oh, here, here I am reporting from you. And, and, and the wind is blowing. And if they're on this side of the tree, what happens is when the storm increases and the wind is blowing, they get blown into the tree. And there's, there's a foundation, there's something solid, and they can hug onto the tree, and it presses them into it. And what God says is when we're on the right side of the relationship holding on to him, we're conformed to the image of Christ. Suffering presses us into him. It conforms us like pushing Plato into a mold of a cross. But if we turn our backs on God and we get over here and say, well, the world will, will lessen the storm for a little while, there comes a point where it will push us away from God. And what God says is you need to realize you need to turn around and you need to come back to me. You need to come to the place of perfect, uh, protection and blessing. When you walk away from me, you have no right to tell me, why aren't you giving us your blessing and protection? God says, turn around and come back. Find this place of refuge with me. Come back to, as Habakkuk says, my God. He, he, he calls God the rock. The rock is a, a picture of, of a refuge. Psalm 18.2 tells us, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. 
God says, come to me. I am the rock. I am the refuge. I am the foundation. He tells us those in the world who build their their house on shifting sand, that's going to collapse. But when you build it on the foundation of the rock, the winds and the rain can come and it will stand. Contrast that with what you see of the Chaldeans, who in Habakkuk 1.11 were depending upon themselves. It says, their strength is their God. In verses 6 through 11, uh, we see the Chaldeans described as being a swift and a fearsome army that utterly destroys the people they came against. Verses 15 through 17 expand on this as they're described as catching their captives with a hook and dragging them away. This was a literal picture. They, archaeologists have uncovered inscriptions, reliefs where things have been carved of them with these big fish hooks that they would put up through the jaw of captives or through their nose and they would string them together and they would literally drag them away like fish on a stringer. And this is the picture. But in contrast, God says, come to me. I am a place of safety. I am your rock, your refuge. Habakkuk knew the Chaldeans had the ability to completely destroy the Jews, which is why he reminds himself of who God is. You're Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. You have promised the Jewish line will not be wiped out. The, The throne of David will have the Messiah sitting on it. The Davidic promise would be fulfilled. And he says, so I know that the people may be defeated, but we won't be destroyed. He says there in verse 12, we will not die. He says, you, O Yahweh, have appointed them to judge, and thou, O rock, have established them to correct. He says, I understand cause and effect. We've sinned. We've turned our back on you. They are coming for discipline in order to turn us back to you, God, to force us to come to you. And what he is doing here is he reminds himself of the person of God, the promises of God, and the purposes of God. And that's what we need to do. In those times where the world makes no sense to us, we need to come back to the word of God. We need to come back to who God is, the one who loves us, the one who can deal with all of the problems. He conquered sin and death. The greatest problem any of us will ever face, God has already fixed. We need to remind ourselves of the promises of God. I will never leave you or forsake you. What can man do? At best, they can kill your body, and then that's the elevator ride home to heaven. Our problems are temporal. Our presence with God will be eternal. And the purposes of God. The reason God has not brought judgment on the world to this point is because, as Peter tells us, God desires none should perish, but that all should come to know him. It is the mercy and grace of God that has kept us so far from experiencing his his deserved judgment. If we had time to keep going through the whole book, we would find Habakkuk coming to this place of peace. As he says, I know you will bring us through this. You will fulfill your purposes of redeeming your people. In Habakkuk 1.13, we're told God's eyes are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. And people say, well, then how could he take the Chaldeans, a people more wicked than the Jews, and let them come in and wipe out the Jews? Well, God used them as a tool of discipline. And as you get to Habakkuk chapter 2 and verses 6 through 20, he will ultimately bring judgment on the Chaldeans. And they were a people destroyed. They, they were not a part of the covenant. They were not those who, who went to God. But Israel has been not destroyed. 
You know, we may not want to be counted among the wicked. As we think about the Chaldeans and the coming judgment, God is too pure, too holy to endure evil. And there is a time coming when he will judge the world as we've seen. And if we are those who do not turn to God, we are part of those who will be judged. Romans 3.10 tells us there is an unrighteous, no, not one. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all deserving of judgment. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. There is a physical death and there is the eternal death. A second death the Bible describes as eternal separation in the lake of fire. But we don't have to go there because of what God did when he went to the, th- to the cross and he died for us. It's why Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. He offers us that gift of eternal life. It is through the blood of Jesus alone that our sins are forgiven. And if you're here this morning and you've never turned in faith to Jesus Christ, Habakkuk 2.4 says, The righteous will live by his faith. God calls on us to place our faith in Jesus Christ. To recognize we've been going the wrong way. We've walked away from God. And as a result, we all owe a penalty of sin called death. And Jesus provided the bridge back to God. In John 14, 6, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so you can picture the cross being laid down over that chasm of sin that has separated you from God. And he says, turn around and come back to me. Walk across the cross, receive the blood of my son as the payment for your sins, and you'll be made a part of my family. If you've never accepted his great gift of new life, I invite you to do so today. And for those of us who have accepted him, he he tells us we need to live holy and righteous lives. We need to be those who who look to, to what God has called us to be, messengers. If you're crying out for revival in the world, Warren Wiersbe once said, draw a circle around yourself and pray, God, let revival start right here with me. And he calls on us to do that, to be those who will turn to him, those who will be messengers of the good news of the gospel. As we end today, I want to go to the Lord in prayer. And if you've never received Jesus as your Savior and you're ready to do that, I'm going to pray a prayer that you can say. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. But what you do have to do is humble your heart and say to God, God, I know I'm a sinner, and I recognize I owe that penalty of death. And today, Jesus, I'm turning to you, and I'm accepting your gift of new life. If you'd like to do that, will you bow your heads and pray this prayer with me? Lord God, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for your long suffering and your mercy that has kept you from judging the world in which we live, from judging us personally as we are deserving of it as well. And Lord God, we know that we all owe a penalty of sin called death. And we thank you that you loved us enough to come and die for us to pay that penalty. And today, Lord, it may be that there's somebody here who's never turned in faith to you, who's never walked across that bridge that you provided. But today, Lord, they're ready to turn from their sin and to you, Jesus, to be their Savior. And if that's you, then say this to God God, I'm a sinner. I recognize I've made mistakes in my life. I've tried to be good, but I've messed up. 
Because of that, I owe a penalty of sin called death. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died. You took my place. And today, Jesus, I accept your death in my place, your blood to wash away my sins. I thank you, Lord, for that gift of new life. And Lord God, for the rest of us who have come to faith in the past, we're sorry that we continue to turn our backs on you. We acknowledge our need for you. And we ask that you would draw us individually and our nation back to you. We pray, Father, for those who are hurting in the world, in those places that have been hit by storms and earthquakes, that have had homes and communities wiped out. We pray, Father, for those who have been injured in violence. We ask for those who have lost loved ones, that they would feel your peace that passes all understanding. We pray, Lord, for your your peace for those first responders and others who saw horrible things in Las Vegas and in other places of tragedy. Would you meet and minister to them? Would you cover their memories with your peace? Father, we pray for your healing of those who were hurt. And Lord God, we thank you that you are a rock in our refuge, a very present help in times of trouble. Thank you for your love for us and your promise that you will never leave us or forsake us. Would you use us now, Lord, as your messengers of the good news as we go into a dark and dying world? We pray this in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ.